0: Hey, future doctors, thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Ria Moherker. I'm a radiation oncology resident in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I will be your host today. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to take a minute to emphasize the leadership opportunity that's available to any med students who have taken USMLE Step 1. We here at SOS are looking for dedicated students to join our student board and fill in both chair as well as member positions within our four student board committees. I really have always wanted this podcast to be made for the students, by the students, And now as I'm nearing the end of my residency, um, I really want to kind of pass this forward to the SOS students and, you know, to let you guys take this podcast into your own hands. So this is a really great opportunity if you're interested to gain some leadership experience, connect globally with medical students, and truly make a real impact in medical education. I'm not kidding when I say that the students that are selected to serve on this student board we'll be producing the next season of Spoonful of Sugar. So if you're interested in this opportunity and you'd like more information on the specific roles and responsibilities of each of these committees, please visit spoonfulofsugar.org apply. And there you'll find the link to the application form. There's quite a bit of time, we're accepting applications through December 15th, and the position will be for the 2024 calendar year. So if you have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out to us either via Instagram or Twitter or contact at spoonfulofsugar.org, and I really hope that you'll consider applying. I look forward to reviewing your applications. With that said, let's move on to the topic of today's episode, pulmonary nodules, So as I just said, I think it's really important that most of the episodes here on Spoonful of Sugar are hosted by other medical students who are close to having taken their USMLE board exams. I am now in my fourth year of residency and Radonk is five years total. um, And I'm really sad that I already forget so many little details that I knew through and through for the step exams. Still, I think I do know a thing or two that could be of value to medical students, and so whenever I get a request or I think of a topic that might be valuable, um, I try to make some time to record an episode for you guys. So pulmonary nodules, I think, is a topic that I definitely have to know really well as a radiation oncologist, and it's something that internists, family med docs, oncologists, and surgeons also deal with regularly. So at some point along the way in your clinical rotations, you are definitely bound to encounter this topic as well. So I thought, let's go ahead and review it. As always, I'm going to be asking lots of questions to get the wheels in your brain turning. If you don't know the answer or if you get it wrong, please don't feel bad. The beauty of a podcast is that I will never know. And really all that matters is if you learn. So with that said, let's get started. The first question I have for you guys is what is the most commonly used imaging modality for a pulmonary nodule? And if you need a hint, I'll give you four options as if this were a multiple choice question. So ultrasound, chest x-ray, CT scan, or MRI. Which would you choose? The answer is a CT scan of the chest. When I was studying for, I think it's step two where they start asking you to choose what kind of imaging. Um, but when I was studying for that, I always used to get really confused with the different types of imaging because I didn't feel like I knew them really well. So I'll try to give you a little bit of advice on how to tackle these questions. So generally you want to pick the imaging modality that's the cheapest, quickest, and most effective tool for visualizing anything. So of the four choices that I gave you, ultrasound mainly helps you see fluid. So if you're concerned about something in the lungs, maybe like hemothorax, um, in the emergency room you might do a fast ultrasound if someone comes in after a trauma and you're trying to assess for any fluid in the lungs or around the heart. A chest x-ray used to be the preferred type of imaging modality, but that's because CT scans weren't available then. Once they started becoming more available, um, they are definitely more sensitive and specific for detecting lung nodules. Now, MRIs can show lung nodules, But CT scan is actually more sensitive and MRI is also a lot more expensive. It's more time consuming. It's slower for the patient. It can take anywhere from 30 to 45 minutes, whereas CT scans just take five minutes. And so CT scan really is the most sensitive and specific. And it's also, you know, cheaper than an MRI. It's very quick for the patient and it's probably the easiest to get. And so that's why if you're concerned about pulmonary nodules or you need to follow up pulmonary nodules... CT scan of the chest is the imaging modality that we're definitely going to be talking about. Now, my next question for you is, would you get IV contrast with that CT scan of the chest? Let's say you're just screening for for pulmonary nodules. Would you get IV contrast with that? So no, not in the context of just screening. Contrast is really helpful for us to see things in the soft tissue. It especially helps us to delineate things like lymph nodes and tumors that might be adjacent to muscle. Uh, In the lung window, if we're just kind of screening broadly for any lung nodules or masses, we can pretty easily see those if we use the lung window Uh, when we're looking at the CT scan of the chest. So right off the bat, you wouldn't necessarily need contrast. It's only if you want to work something up a little bit further that you might consider adding contrast down the road. Um, But for an initial screening CT scan, we definitely would not be giving IV contrast. And remember, anytime you give IV contrast, you do have to make sure that the patient's renal function can tolerate it. So great. Now we know if you're looking for lung nodules, your go-to imaging is a CT scan of the chest without contrast up front, just in the screening setting. Are there any populations in particular that we would want to be screening for lung nodules? Absolutely. Uh, Remember the current screening guidelines from the USPSTF? So these guidelines actually recommend screening patients aged 50 to 80 years old with at least 20 pack year smoking history and they have to either be current smokers or have quit within the last 15 years. So I'll just say that again. Anybody age 50 to 80 who has at least 20 pack year smoking history and either is currently smoking or quit within the last 15 years. So what if a 30 year old person comes to you with a 10 pack year smoking history? Would you screen? No, right? Because they're not old enough and they haven't been smoking long enough. Um, So you would definitely counsel this person about smoking cessation, but you wouldn't go ahead and order a screening CT scan of the chest for them. Now, what if a 60-year-old lady comes to you with a 20-pack year smoking history and she says that she quit smoking five years ago? Would you screen this lady? Absolutely, right? Because this person meets all the criteria. She's between 50 and 80. She has 20 pack year smoking history and she quit within the last 15 years. So what test would you order for screening for lung cancer in this patient? So if you're thinking CT scan of the chest, that is absolutely correct. But there is a specific type of CT scan that we order. Do you know what this is? So it's actually a low-dose CT scan. And what does that mean? A low-dose CT scan just uses lower electrical current compared to a standard diagnostic CT. And that ends up subjecting the patient to less doses of radiation compared to a standard diagnostic CT. So if somebody gets a low-dose screening CT and they actually have something concerning for lung cancer or some type of concerning lesion that you want to further work up, then you would proceed with a diagnostic CT. But for the purposes of screening, I should say, for the purposes of screening, a low-dose CT scan has actually been deemed sufficient. And the idea is to kind of spare radiation exposure by using something that's a little bit lower, um, lower dose of radiation. So good, so let's say our patient who meets the criteria for screening goes ahead and gets a low-dose CT scan. And let's say it doesn't show anything. Is she good now for the rest of her life since she quit smoking five years ago? No, right? We recommend screening her every year until she's past that window. So until she's 15 years out and has clear CTs every year, we can't really stop screening her. And do you remember, is there an upper age limit to whom we would screen? Yes, right? Remember we said age 50 to 80? So the upper age limit is technically 80 years old. But this is really something that you have to think about on a case-by-case pace basis as well. Um, think about this. Let's say you have a 70-year-old man who has multiple comorbid conditions, um, such as heart failure and liver failure, and he's not doing really great. You may consider putting a screening CT scan even if he has that smoking history and even if he quit within the last 15 years, you may consider putting screening CT scan on the back burner. Because the golden rule, I should say one of the golden rules in medicine, is to only get a test if you're willing to act on it. So if it changes your management. And if you're dealing with a patient that has too many comorbidities and is too sick and is not going to be able to keep up with follow-up scans or even get any kind of lung cancer treated if he's found to have something, then he's probably not the patient that would benefit from screening, right? So this is a decision that's made by the patient's primary care doctor or their medical oncologist or, you know, whoever they're following with. Um, And it's really on a case-by-case basis. But all these guidelines exist, but we have to think about them within the context of the patient we're taking care for and if something makes sense for them. So if you're dealing with a patient who technically meets all the criteria but is probably not in a position where they can seriously follow up if anything is found or get it treated if it's found, then then that imaging doesn't make sense for them and you wouldn't put them through that. So let's not complicate things too much. Let's just go back to that 60-year-old patient we talked about. Remember, she's a 60-year-old lady. She has 20-pack year smoking history and she quit five years ago. So let's say you're her primary care doctor, and you recommend a low-dose screening CT scan of the chest for her, and she goes ahead and gets that. And let's say we did find something on her CT scan. We found a nodule. What questions do you have about the nodule that was found? What are you looking for in the scan and in the radiology report? So before we even get into the size of the nodule, which I'm sure you're wondering about, We actually have to understand how pulmonary nodules are classified. So if you look at the NCCN guidelines, pulmonary nodules can be classified as solid versus part solid versus ground glass. So these have slightly different appearances to them on the actual CT scan, and it's just important to keep in mind what type of a nodule we're looking at, right? Because... Obviously, with a screening low-dose CT, we're screening for lung cancer. But is a pulmonary nodule always related to lung cancer? Absolutely not. There's a broad differential, right? So certainly malignancy is on your differential if you see a pulmonary nodule. But what are some other things that it could be besides cancer? So it could still be a tumor, but it could be benign. It could be something benign like limpo- lim- lipoma, or hamartoma, or respiratory papillomatosis. It could be an infectious etiology. Um, If someone had a recent infection, it could be a resolving pneumonia. If it's like a mass-like looking thing, it could also be related to fungal infection. Uh, There could be something immune-mediated going on, like nodular sarcoidosis or granulomatosis. It could be a congenital malformation, such as an arteriovenous malformation, Sometimes nodules could just be related to atelectasis, right? Um, Kind of where the lung kind of um, collapses in on itself. And then one thing I learned when I was an intern, so COVID infection generates ground glass opacities and they can kind of remain over time. And so you might see a ground glass opacity that's kind of a residual finding from a past infection too. Um, Doesn't necessarily have to be COVID, but it's something to keep in mind. So what if a person has a ground glass nodule? Is that more or less concerning for cancer versus a solid nodule? Ground glass, I would say, is probably less concerning, but still we know that sometimes ground glass opacities can turn out to be cancer, so we can't rule it out. So in general, for the ground glass nodule, we operate based on size criteria. So if it's less than 2 centimeters, and 2 centimeters is 20 millimeters, okay, just keep that in mind. So if it's less than 2 centimeters, we can continue with annual screening CT until the patient's no longer a candidate. And if it's 2 or more centimeters, then we might opt for shorter follow-up maybe in 6 months as opposed to in 12 months. So ground glass opacities, we don't generally work them up right away, but we kind of Keep an eye on the size. So if it's less than two centimeters, we're okay with spacing out that CT and getting another one in a year. But if it's two centimeters or more, then we might want shorter term follow-up to get a repeat CT scan in about six months. So the reason that the size criteria is so high, you know, it's two centimeters or more, which is 20 millimeters or more, is because in general ground glass opacities are less concerning for cancer. However, um, you'll notice that the size criteria is much lower when we're dealing with solid or part solid nodules. So moving on then, what do we do for solid or part solid nodules? So you actually measure the solid component of the nodule and, and kind of go from there. So in terms of measurements, what do you think is the biggest measurement that we would tolerate calling a pulmonary nodule? Like what is a measurement that would actually concern you for a cancerous mass? Usually around three centimeters. So anything three centimeters or higher is a mass until proven otherwise. So you absolutely need to pursue that um, workup with either a biopsy or an excision because if it's that big, we're really concerned for a cancerous process. But anything less than 3 centimeters, we would typically call it a nodule. And then based on the size of the nodule and other uh, appearance criteria, we might, you know, take certain different actions. So what you want to do is measure the entirety of the solid nodule or the solid component of the part solid nodule. And, you know, based on the measurement of that nodule, we'll go from there. So if a solid module... I'm sorry, if a solid nodule measures less than six millimeters, what do you think would be your next course of action? Less than six millimeters is pretty small, right? So we would actually just pursue that with annual screening. So follow up in one year with a repeat low dose CT scan of the chest. Now, what if the nodule is a little bit bigger? Let's say it's six to eight millimeters. What might we do? So if it's a little bit bigger, we might opt for shorter follow-up period. So repeat that low-dose CT scan in six months. Now, if it's more than 8 millimeters, let's say it's 8 to 15 millimeters, what do you think could be an appropriate course of action? So at this point, 8 to 15 millimeters, it's a little bit larger. We might opt for an even closer follow-up, so three months follow-up, Or we might opt for a PET scan right away. So there's a couple of ways that you could go. If you're concerned enough, you can get a PET scan right away. But if you're still not super concerned, but you're a little bit worried now because it's a little bit larger, you might just get a closer follow-up in just three months. And then what if it's greater than 15 millimeters? So at this point you might opt for further imaging to evaluate your finding on a low-dose CT scan. Because remember, a low-dose CT scan is by no means the gold standard for looking at lung cancer. It's just a screening tool that we have that has been shown to be equivalent to standard dose for detecting things. But it's not necessarily appropriate for diagnosing things, right? So if it's over 15 millimeters, you would want to get a CT of the chest with contrast this time, or you might consider getting a PET scan to see if that lesion is FDG-AVID, or you might even consider getting tissue sampling. And these are not mutually exclusive, so you could do something like get a PET scan and pursue a biopsy if it's PET-AVID, or you could get a CT scan of the chest with contrast and a PET and go from there. So there's a little bit of room to, um, you know, to to make your clinical decision, Um, and Always, if you look at the NCCN guidelines, these decisions should be made in a multidisciplinary setting. So with in the presence of a radiologist, along with a thoracic surgeon, as well as a pulmonologist, ideally, um, you know, multiple physicians are going to be weighing in on what is the appropriate next course of action. And these nodules are often brought up in tumor boards. So just to summarize, we said that if a nodule is less than six millimeters, we're okay with continuing annual screening. If it's six to eight millimeters, we might consider a shorter follow-up period, a repeat low-dose scan in six months. If it's eight to 15 millimeters, we might consider a three-month follow-up or a PET scan. And if it's greater than 15 millimeters, we might just want to get more imaging right now with either a CT of the chest with contrast or a PET scan, and potentially some tissue sampling if we're really concerned. So those decisions have a little bit of leeway, right? So when we're dealing with anything that's over 8 millimeters, anything between 8 millimeters and 3 centimeters, we have some leeway. And we're saying if we're really worried, we would get a scan right away. But if we're not as worried, we would wait 3 months. So other than size, what features are we looking at to help make those decisions? Any idea? So one thing you can look at for sure is the growth rate. And this is possible if the patient has had previous scans. So if they've had prior screening scans or if they had other CT scans of the chest for different reasons, you can go back and see if the nodule was seen, when it was first seen, and how fast it has grown. So if it's doubling within less than a year... That certainly makes you more concerned than if it's been kind of stable over time. So definitely go back and see if they have had past scans and if, you know, what the growth rate of that nodule has been if it was present prior. The other characteristic that you can look at on the nodule itself is the margins. So there's a finding known as spiculated margins. And I think of this as just kind of like having spiky margins. If the margins are speculated, this makes it highly suspicious for cancer. And another risk factor that has been identified is a nodule within the upper lobes because we know that the majority of lung cancers actually happen in the upper lobes. And so this has been identified as a risk factor. Now, on the other side, things that are more likely to be, be benign include small things that are associated with the pleura, are oftentimes calcifications are more often than not benign. So it's really important not only to pay attention to the size, but to also pay attention to these other clues that can make you more suspicious for something benign versus something malignant. And you really also need to take into account the patient's clinical history and consider whether or not this particular nodule, or even if something is avid on a PET scan, if it could be associated with infection, right? Because infection can certainly lead to nodules and anything that's infected can also lead to increased uptake on a PET scan. So you really need need to keep in mind the patient's clinical history as well as their symptoms. So remember, it's really when you get into the nodules that are measuring 8 millimeters or more that you get into the gray zone of what's the appropriate course of action. So like I said before, the NCCN guidelines truly recommend multidisciplinary consultation. You want to have not only your radiologist there, but also thoracic surgery and pulmonology to address these nodules and as a group decide what is the next best course of action. There are also some available risk calculators that you can utilize as well. Now, another thing to keep in mind if you do opt for closer follow up with repeat imaging in three to six months, do pay attention to how much the nodule grows. So, if it doesn't grow, you can probably start, you know, get another follow up and then start spacing it out if it continues to be stable. If it grows less than eight millimeters, you can continue with close follow up within the next three months. And if it grows more than 8 millimeters, you probably want to get a CT of the chest with contrast or a PET CT followed by a biopsy if it's looking suspicious. So it's really important if you're getting serial scans to pay close attention to that growth rate. That's really the point of getting serial scans, right? So now what happens if you actually confirm a diagnosis of lung cancer? What then? So remember... So far, we have just obtained a low-dose screening CT scan of the chest. And then if we're suspicious, we're getting further workup, right? Either a CT chest with contrast or a PET CT and then maybe a biopsy. So you're starting the workup for lung cancer just by getting those things, but then you actually have to complete the staging workup. And to find the full staging workup for lung cancer, or any cancer for that matter, you can log on to nccn.org and there are guidelines there for each stage of cancer. But for lung cancer in particular, if we have a biopsy-proven diagnosis of lung cancer Uh, Remember, lung cancer falls into one of two buckets, either non-small cell lung cancer or small cell lung cancer. So to stage lung cancer, you need to get a PET scan, you need to perform pulmonary function tests to determine if the patient is a candidate for surgery, and you can get a bronchoscopy as well to look for any lymph nodes close to the mediastinum. And you really should consider um, pathologic mediastinal lymph node assessment either um, through bronchoscopy and kind of ultrasound-guided biopsy or through actual mediastinal sampling um, where you kind of poke a a hole in their mediastinum and look for lymph nodes that way. So if they have any lymph nodes um, close to the hilum or the mediastinum or their tumor size is large enough that they would be considered stage 2 lung cancer, then we also need to get a brain MRI with contrast to rule out brain metastases because we know that lung cancer really likes to spread to the brain. So if they have stage 2 disease or higher, um, then we really need to be getting a brain MRI with contrast as well. So it's really important to complete the staging workup and, you know, if you're not familiar with what the staging workup is, I would recommend that if you're doing something oncology related, you know, go to nccn.org and and read there what the full staging workup is for your patient. Now, if you do have an early stage lung cancer that has not spread to any of the hilar or mediastinal lymph nodes, then we have a few options for management. So if the patient is a surgical candidate, the standard of care is typically surgery, so excision of the lesion. Um, typically with a lobectomy. So you're not just removing the lung lesion, you're actually removing the entire lobe where the lesion is present. And that's kind of the surgical standard of care. Now, if the patient is not a surgical candidate or they don't want to undergo surgery, uh, there's an effective alternative treatment, which is stereotactic radiation. So all that means is we're giving three to five treatments of high-dose radiation just to where the tumor is located to ablate the tumor so either surgery or stereotactic radiation and then if the patient has more advanced stage disease so if it's a bigger tumor or if they have any lymph node involvement then the patient might need surgery plus or minus chemo um and if it's really advanced they might not be a surgical candidate and they might have to be treated with concurrent chemo radiation and at this point we're dealing with a longer course of radiation that would be over the course of a few weeks so pulmonary nodules can get complicated really fast as soon as you start talking about um, you know lung cancer treatment and staging and everything like that Um, but i do think it's good to be familiar with the screening guidelines and the basics of how to handle suspicious findings It's also important to have an idea of how things might escalate towards treatment if we do find that the patient has a lung cancer, because that way you know how to counsel patients if you're ever in this clinical scenario, you know, whether it is in the setting of an outpatient primary care setting um, or, you know, just something incidental that you happen to be working with no matter what your specialty is. I think it's important to have an understanding of how these things are worked up, diagnosed, and then treated. So that is actually all I have. If you are still listening, thank you so much for tuning into the podcast and sticking with it. Um, We love, we always love having more students join our team. Um, And if you're interested in doing so, one option is just to host an episode kind of like this one. Um, We've had so many students um, over the last few years. So if you're interested in hosting an episode, please reach out to us at contact at spoonfulofsugar.org. Um, And I'm very serious about having more students be on our student board. Um, If you're interested in having a more official role on the team, being in a leadership position and helping to kind of lead the way with the next season of this podcast, I really encourage you to consider applying through spoonfulofsugar.org slash apply. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about this particular episode, please visit our website and you can post them under the link for this episode. I want to wish you guys all the best of luck with studying, rotations, whatever part of the journey you're on. And remember that SOS doesn't just have to mean a cry for help. It can also stand for spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down.